Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Centuries before Marcel Proust's philosophical novel A la recherche du temps perdu, took us on a tour of memory, and James Joyce played with stream of consciousness, a 16th century nobleman named Michel de Montaigne developed a wholly new style of reflective prose that examined his place in the world. Spanning the seemingly trivial in his essay of the custom of wearing clothes, to the surreal of thumbs and the profound in of sadness or sorrow and of solitude, Reading Montaigne can feel like meeting an old friend after a period of absence. As you sit together, he tells you about his life, his work and his family, and of the choices and ideas that have come to him through the art of living. Unlike most philosophy, the essays are not obscure or difficult to read. Instead, Montaigne's thoughts, questions and worries appear on the page as though they are your own, at once intensely personal to his own life, and somehow Universal. Joining me today to discuss the enduring legacy of the essays is Sarah Bakewell, author of How to Live, A Life of Montaigne in One Question and Twenty Attempts at an Answer, a book which examines Montaigne's life through the prism of his work. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Sarah Bakewell, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It is a delight to have you here and to talk about one of the most interesting people of the 16th century, Michel de Montaigne. Could you start us off with just the basics, who he was, when he lived and where? Yes, he was born in 1533. He lived in southwestern France, not far from Bordeaux, on the winemaking estate he inherited from his family, and which is still going. That was his one of his day jobs. And another one was various political duties. He was a magistrate in the city of Bordeaux, later its mayor. But he always claimed that none of that was very important to him. What he really loved doing was writing what he called essays. And we still use this word, but he really was the one who first used it in that meaning. And he took it from the French essay to try. So they were like trials of himself or tryouts of ideas is how I like to think of it. Just having a go with running an idea across the page, seeing where it led and produced this massive collection of these 
chapters of these essays, which I still think we read with enormous pleasure today. They're of the 16th century. This was his world. But they also speak to each one of us in very entertaining, I think, and profound and thought-provoking way. So they're something, this is an overused word, but I think unique at the time he writes them, that this combination of something personal and political, because he writes the essays over 20-odd years, and so you've got a sense that he's capturing both what's happening in his life and also what's happening in France at large. I suppose we should talk about that. What do they tell us about France at the time he was alive? He lived in a very disturbed period of French history and European history, the main cause of the disturbance being the wars of religion between Protestant and Catholic, which, particularly in France, absolutely cleaved through society. Families could be divided, his family among them, because some of them went the Protestant way, some of them stayed Catholics. He certainly considered himself a Catholic. But it also brought tremendous bloodshed because these were wars. People were having to fortify their homes. There were all sorts of armies rampaging through the countryside. In fact, often it could be very dangerous when there was a temporary pause in these wars because then there would be a lot of unpaid, unemployed soldiers still roaming around with nothing much to do. And obviously that could be a very dangerous thing. So it was really insecure time to live in. Insecure both in terms of what do you believe in, which religious authority is telling the truth, but also just in terms of the sheer stability and security of life. So he did get drawn into this because he did have a political life. As a minor nobleman, he was expected to engage himself. But in his essays, what we do get a certain amount of military reflection on strategy and things which he's picked up from his reading or from current events. But there's also a lot of reflection on what it means to be a human being in the middle of this. How should you live when these things are going on? To what extent should you engage yourself? Or should you just, as Voltaire would put it much later, cultivate your garden and think about what's immediately around you, your immediate life and connections and commitments? As often in Montaigne, he doesn't actually come down with one definite idea about how you're supposed to respond to these things. He just gives us lots of thoughts as they occur to him at different times. Hundreds of years before Virginia Woolf talked about creating a room of one's own, Montaigne created a kind of refuge in his library, although it's both a place where he could write and socialise. So he's blocking out the world, but also inviting it in. And I wonder if there's a kind of reflection there in the fact that he creates a form of writing that's both deeply personal and yet somehow, as you said at the beginning, still appeals to us today, somehow it's still universal as well. That was definitely how he saw it. He has this phrase that each person bears the entire form of the human condition, which is an extraordinary thought, because at the same time, he also was a great believer or very interested in the huge diversity of people individually, but also in terms of different cultures. He was fascinated by different cultural traditions, the way that things are done in different parts of the world. Very keen not to impose one single way of being human onto this. And yet, at the same time, he also really appealed to an idea that there's a universal shared humanity that we all have. And somehow both can be true, which I think is an interesting one today where we see those as somehow being in opposition. Either you've got a respect for diversity or you've got a sense of some universal humanity. He certainly saw those two things as going together, really. 
But I love that idea, which is the idea behind it's his justification for writing the essays, is that by reading one person who considers his or her, in his case, his life, reflect on his experience, on his reading, on the shifting ideas constantly going through his head or the physical experiences that he's having, that somehow each one of us can recognise ourselves to some extent. It's like a mirror. In fact, you mentioned Virginia Woolf. She, on reading Montaigne, used the metaphor of a mirror, that it's a portrait. Her comparison was when you visit a gallery and you're looking at a portrait hanging on the wall, but you then realise that your reflection is also coming back to you from this image. So you're looking at a mirror and a portrait of another person at the same time, which I think is a great way of describing Montaigne because you're recognising yourself all the time in little bits and pieces of his character and underlying that just a general feeling of what it is to be a human being in all its complexity and all its difficulty. I suppose that's true of all great writing, really, that actually it serves as a mirror as well as a portrait. Yes, I think it is. But I think with Montaigne, it's really overt. That's what the book is about. It's like that if there's a guiding idea to the book, as I see it. Of course, people have many different ways of viewing his book and what it's all about. And that's also, I think, the great mark of a classic work of literature is that you can read it in so many different ways. And to some extent, you read into it what you want to find in it. But it's because it's all there for the finding. There's so much. It's so varied, it's so rich in the material that it talks about and the sense of his personality is certainly comes across very strongly. I think it's also interesting to remember that he does come from a very different period of time and a different culture and that's part of the fascination. So my experience of reading Montaigne right from the beginning was this one moment thinking, oh, that's just like me, I recognise that response that feeling and then the next second he says something that is completely opaque to a modern reader like totally puzzling what is he talking about there's these 16th century preoccupations that I think we don't always necessarily respond to there's a great interest in the sense of having a good name that your image and status in the world is tremendously important you get a lot of that in Shakespeare as well and some of the things that he says allude to that and I think it's difficult for a modern reader or we have to do a lot of translating mentally to relate it to things that we might understand but I like that constant mixture and tension between the things that we respond to in an immediate way and the things that are a bit more puzzling and that you actually have to use a bit of historical imagination or study to understand it's a tension that's very rich and fertile. Yes and I suppose to give a sense of the difference of his upbringing is probably worth mentioning the very strange fact he grows up speaking latin fluently with the servants he had an upbringing that was actually bizarre by the standards of the time nobody else that we know of really tried this experiment so his father who wasn't actually particularly well educated himself as was quite common among the nobility at the time but he did have a great admiration for learning a great fascination with the latin literature and culture that was considered so important at the time, it really was considered the height of learning, was to read the Latin authors and speak a beautiful, perfect Latin. That was what everybody aspired towards. So he had this idea that in bringing up his eldest son, which was Michel de Montaigne was his eldest, 
that it would be a big advantage to the boy for the rest of his life if he could be a native speaker of Latin, have all the advantages of growing up with it as his native language. So he isolated the young boy from really any other language, either the French that we would now recognise or the local dialect of the area, which the servants probably would have spoken. And instead he did two things. He forbid anybody else in the family from talking to Michel, the boy, and anything other than Latin. And he brought in a tutor who was German and who didn't speak either French or the local dialect at all. So the only medium of communication was Latin with this tutor. And even the servants had to learn some Latin if they wanted to talk to him. And his mother had to learn Latin. Women didn't normally learn any Latin at the time. So he did grow up with Latin absolutely in his bones, but it didn't really stick because went off to school when he was, I think, about six. And he said that he promptly forgot the Latin that he had learned. So he came out of school with worse Latin than he'd gone into it with. But also it's very noticeable that when he came to write the essays, he made a point of writing in French and not Latin. This was quite unusual because a lot of things were written in Latin. He said half jokingly it's very hard to be sure with him that he chose to write in French because Latin was an eternal language that would last forever but French was a kind of temporary modern language that wouldn't last and he didn't want his essays to be for all time he wanted them to be temporary as well so that's why he wrote in French (laughs) who knows how seriously he meant that but he didn't abandon reading in Latin. He continued to read and quote the Latin authors in Latin. There's quite a lot of Latin quotations in the essays, but to write the main body of it in French. So I think that was saying something about how he saw his education. But he respected, I think, what his father was trying to do, but also saw it as something that is ridiculous because it just doesn't correspond to real life. You mentioned that he became a politician and... That was at the border Parlement, which is a law court as much as anything else. And he met Etienne de Le Bottier there, who mm. is the friend who is the subject of one of his famous essays on friendship. Can we talk about how Montaigne's life and writing was influenced by that friendship? Yes, it was a very important friendship to him as a young man. Etienne de La Bottier was a highly educated, very eloquent, very clever, again, He hadn't grown up as a native speaker of Latin, but he did have an excellent command of literature. And he was also very politically engaged. He wrote this great essay on voluntary servitude, which was basically an analysis of tyranny and how it works and the fact that it actually requires the consent of people to uphold a tyrant. And therefore, the people could take that power away from the tyrant again because it ultimately comes from them. Fascinating analysis. Clearly a very interesting person, very inspiring. And Montaigne rather looked up to him, I think, and it fell in love with him in many ways, in whatever way it may or may not be. But I think it certainly was an extremely passionate admiration and closeness. Shared everything with him, shared all his thoughts with him. Unfortunately, Labuetti died very young of the plague, almost certainly. And Montaigne was with him to the very end, wrote a description of his death but also of his life and of how really you can take him as an example. It's a bit in the classical tradition of writing about an exemplary life of somebody wonderful so that we can learn from that example and learn to be better ourselves and also a good death, a brave death and a noble death. 
So he wrote this account, which is very moving to read. And it was one of his earliest bits of writing. It was really what got him into writing in this personal way, I think. And he also planned initially to include some of Labretti's own writings, poems. Labretti wrote sonnets and Montaigne planned to have a whole chapter of the essays right at the centre of the book, which would actually just host these poems. Labretti would have his voice in there as well. He later changed his mind, decided to publish them separately, in fact. So it left this kind of gap at the centre of the essays. But he filled it with his chapter on friendship, with reflections on friendship, again, from the classical world, from his reading, other great famous stories of great friendships, and just his thoughts on how important it is. And his loss of Labretti. There's this great sense of this loss that crops up occasionally in his work. It's a very moving story. and A sad one, but in a way... The loss of Labretti sparked the essays as definitely, it wasn't an absolutely straightforward, he went out the next day and started writing them. But there's a very strong argument for saying that lacking somebody to talk to, I mean, he says this himself, lacking somebody to share his every thoughts with, somebody who would understand him so well, somebody that he could always be a sounding board for whatever he was thinking, he came up with the idea of writing them down instead. Maybe if Labretti hadn't died, we wouldn't have the essays. Yes, I wonder, because there's that wonderful line, there's lots of wonderful lines, but there's one wonderful line about Le Boitier, where Montaigne says, he is still lodged in me so entire and so alive mm. that I cannot believe he is so irrevocably buried. And I wondered whether, following on from what you've just said, whether the act of writing was a way for Montaigne to make people immortal, to make ideas that he couldn't bear to let go stick forever despite the fact he's written it in French. <laughs> yes I know that's a typical paradox in his work because that's exactly the sense that you get but then at the same time you also get this quip about not writing forever not wanting to be immortal. There's a very strong sense of mortality almost as a positive thing in the essays and what I'm thinking about specifically there is he had an experience himself where he was thrown from his horse while he was out riding. He was a very keen horse rider, as most noblemen were at the time he had to be. But he loved riding. He loved being out in the open air. And one day he fell from his horse and he was knocked unconscious. And he wrote an essay describing what that felt like to be sort of so close to death because he gradually came round. His friends and servants carried him back to the house and he gradually emerged from this sleep-like state and afterwards reflected on this near brush with death, the fact that he'd been hanging on to life only by the tip of his lips, as he put it in the French phrase. And his conclusion was really that he had been very frightened of death as a younger man. He tormented himself with the thought that he must die one day, that he was mortal. And he moved more towards realisation that if dying is just this sort of semi-conscious, like drifting away into a dream, then it's nothing to be frightened of. He also mentioned that it was told afterwards that all this time that he was floating in this kind of blissful, dreamlike semi-consciousness that actually seemed very agitated and was, as he was coming round and was like tearing at his own clothes as if he was in a lot of pain or distress. But he didn't remember any of that feeling at all. And, and so he thought that's reassuring too, because maybe when people seem very distressed at the moment of death, perhaps what they're experiencing is really very different. So it's a kind of turn from that point on. He tries to turn away from this fear and horror of death and more into 
celebrating life, really, celebrating what it is to be in the here and now. He writes a lot about getting older and about suffering illness and pain. He suffered agonising kidney stone pain and an infection that came from that was what eventually killed him. The body is fragile, the body suffers, and he writes about that very powerfully and very strongly. But it is entwined with what it is to be alive, and it's a temporary thing. So this sense of life's fleetingness, but also that there's a sense of the here and now is what's important, and that we should live it as well as we can. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there's a sense in which his essays are about, as you've called your book, how to live, but it's how to live in the midst of grief and it's how to live whilst handling a fear of death. And it's also how to be fully present, what we now call mindfulness. But I feel that there's a tension there because Montaigne does have a bit of a tendency to linger in the past, doesn't he, in his Mm. writing? How does this contradiction play out in his work? Yes, he even says literally, I think, as he gets older, that because looking forward becomes rather scary that he prefers to look backwards. (laughs) But in a wider sense, there's, of course, his absolute fascination with past writers, books, the culture of the Latin world, the ancient world, as well as other cultures of his own time. He's very bookish in some ways, but he also says that he isn't. He says that he just reads for pleasure. And if he doesn't enjoy anything, he'll just throw the book away from him, that books are not important. Life is what's important. 
But clearly books are incredibly important to him. He had a really fine library. He fills the book with quotations from his reading and he actually had a selection of his favourite quotations painted onto the ceiling beams of his study in his tower because he literally had a tower. It's still there. He had a library tower where he spent his time and uh, he wrote all his favourite sort of thoughts from his reading onto the ceiling beams of that. So literally a way of living with the past. Well, that sounds like it's looming over you, but I think he found it very enriching. And again, it's that recognising oneself in what somebody else has written. He felt that too. He commented that his favourite books were the ones where you got a sense of life. So he loved biography. He loved Plutarch's lives, especially. He loved history books for what they could tell him about human nature and how people had lived. There is a tension, definitely. It might be mindfulness in the here and now, but I think even stronger than that is this sense of the richness of literature and shared experiences. So drawing on how other people have lived their lives and what's happened to them and drawing on past events in history as well in order to understand the current events of his day and to gain wisdom. This was a very strong tradition in the century or so among humanists, beginning in Italy, but also very much in France as well, which I've written about more recently, a kind of book about the humanist tradition. And one part of that was this sense that our lives and our wisdom is enriched by drawing on the wisdom of the past, but also reinventing it for our own time and applying it. He grew up in that tradition, all this stuff about being a Latin speaker, was all because of that tradition being so powerful at the time. But he is really an interesting figure in the history of humanism because he takes that tradition and he's completely immersed in it. He's so good at it. He's so widely read. He's so reflective a reader. He thinks so much about all these other voices from the past. But he also does say that he doesn't want to be subjected to them. He doesn't subordinate his own thinking to the thinking of the past he doesn't respect the great writers of the past just because they're famous and respected. Of Cicero, who was the most revered writer of all, of Cicero, he says, sometimes it's nothing but hot air. <laughs> and that these writers could have been improved. They could have done with a bit of editing, we would probably say. They could have done better. We can improve on them. And that's a very 16th century thing, I think, that there's beginning to be a move from the uncritical adoration of the classical world and the past and beginning to think that the world has changed as well, that we have to live in their world. So the 16th century was a time when several massive transformations had happened in European culture. There was the widespread success of printing, which dates from the previous century, but it was really becoming very widespread and books were very readily available. But also there was the contact with the Americas, with the new world, as the Europeans called it. So that was an interesting one because the classical writers didn't know about that. They didn't know that there were another two continents over there that they simply didn't suspect the existence of. So therefore that raised the question in the minds of readers in the 16th century. If they didn't know about that, what else didn't they know? And perhaps they weren't so perfect after all. Perhaps they weren't the summation of all human wisdom. And we need to question them sometimes and think more freshly. So there's a lot of that going on in Montaigne. He's very much a transitional figure, really, in starting to question that classical tradition, but also maintaining it and excelling in it.
I want to ask you also about him as a philosopher, because he is often considered such, but he's not writing in abstractions. He's very much using stories and human scenarios to think about the question of how to live. Was he unique at the time in doing this? He has a strong claim to uniqueness because he is distinctively what we now think of as the essayist style of writing in a very personal way and rather a disorganised way certainly creating the appearance of being quite disorganised on the page, spontaneous, certainly not the way that philosophers are usually expected to proceed by making a series of very clear claims and defending them and arguing for them and dealing with objections and coming up with a conclusion. There's none of that in Montaigne, but he's very interested in some of the philosophical traditions. The ones that he particularly engages with are ancient scepticism, Pyrrhonian, as it's called, after Pyrrho, who was one of the writers who was most important in that tradition. So scepticism, which from Montaigne meant asking himself, how can I be sure? What do I know? And this cursage, what do I know, was his sort of distinctive question. He actually had it put onto a kind of medallion that he wore with also a picture of scales, meaning I weigh things, maybe weigh evidence, weigh ideas holding things in the balance and not necessarily coming down on one side or another. So that sceptical tradition was about not coming down with certainty on one side or the other if you really don't have any definite reason to be sure, reserving judgment. And he was very keen on doing that. But another tradition that he he was very interested in Stoicism, which is another one of those traditions really about how to maintain your mental equilibrium in the face of the things that happen in life. But another one was Epicureanism. So that's a tradition that goes back through Epicurus to earlier writers and was, again, really about how to manage a kind of mental equilibrium in the face of the terrible things that happen in an average human life. But the emphasis there is on pleasure, but pleasure is mainly defined as an absence of pain. So it's bad things will happen, but there are ways of keeping yourself calm and not being carried away by them. All those traditions have a certain amount in common, really, of being about how do you live a human life. So he was interested in all of those and a lot of what he wrote engages with those ideas. In terms of having to deal with terrible things happening, not only has he seen his closest friend die, but also after his marriage to Françoise de la Chassin, we know that they lost all but one of their children. And there's something about the Stoic and the way that he writes about that in actual Mm. fact. What do we know about his marriage because he also doesn't write very much about her and what we know about his response to these great losses yes he writes really from a stoic point of view you get a real sense of him trying to console himself on the page I think when he says these things but he says that he tries not to grieve too much over a death the deaths of children do we believe him it's very hard to be sure yeah he was left with The only surviving child was a daughter who did remain close to him, did live with him in later years. And he also lived with his wife and also with his mother, who lived a very long life as well. So he gives the impression that he left the three women 
the main part of the house was their realm, really, and they lived their lives. His wife also had her own tower at another corner of the property. And so you have this mental image, really, of his mother in the main house, actually, his wife in a tower at one corner of the property, and Montaigne himself in a tower at the other corner of the property, which is a rather sad image. But I think he also describes domestic evenings by the fireside, playing games with his daughter or with his children when they're still there, with his wife as well. I think there was a certain amount of domestic happiness and also a certain amount of very separate realms, which is partly a, a function of the time, the 16th century. It was expected that men and women would have rather separate realms in the home. And also that you didn't really write very much about women, not about your wife, say. It wasn't really quite the decent thing to do. It was considered that their modesty should entail that they're not dragged out into the public realm with lots of stories about them. So again, it's really hard to know quite what to think because you so much want, when reading the essays, you so much want to have more evidence, to have more about her, more about the women in the household. And there's almost nothing in that sense. He followed convention. In other ways, he didn't, but in that way he did, I think. Do you think that he believed men and women to be equal, which wasn't a particularly popular idea at the time? Again, he's very mixed because on the one hand, he says he thinks it's hard to have a proper friendship with a woman because of the inequality. On the other hand, he says that he thinks men and women are only different because of the very different upbringing that they have. And he also thinks that there's a tremendous double standard going on when it comes to sexuality so that women... He said if they could, I'm sure they would basically enjoy lovers just as much as men enjoy having a bit on the side kind of thing. And why shouldn't they? So he says things that definitely imply that he thinks women, but for their unfortunately very limited education and experience of the world, because they're kept away from experience of the world, would have really all the faculties that men do. But he speaks against himself in a sense. Interestingly, really, women turned out to be very important in his literary life as well as his domestic one because his adopted daughter as she considered herself became his editor his posthumous editor and worked with him in the last few years of his life and this is Marie de Gournay who was an avowed feminist absolutely totally in your face feminist who wrote about the inequality of men and women she supported herself by her writing particularly later when she met Montaigne she was still a young woman who'd managed to educate herself in the library of, particularly of a favourite uncle, I think. She pretty much threw herself at Montaigne, but in a literary way rather than a a sexual one, wanting to become his disciple. She admired his work, she wanted to work with him, and she did. So she, in the last few years of his life, as it turned out, she helped him to produce material for a final edition of the essays, He was constantly revising the essays after its first published version. He produced another published version a few years later. And then he wrote masses of new material for the final edition. He didn't live long enough to see that be published, but she worked together with him on putting that material together. And when he died, she assembled the final version of it and published it after his death. And her edition became the standard edition of his essays for many years Until in the 20th century, there was a bit of a, I think, a very anti-female, misogynistic backlash against her version, saying, how could a young woman possibly 
have produced a reliable edition of the essays. And they went back to another version with a lot of his notes on it and said, no, we should use that version instead of hers. In fact, there's been a now a backlash again against that feud, going back to her edition as being more reliable, probably representing his final wishes more than that other copy does. He worked with her. He clearly respected her. You get the feeling that he was a bit bamboozled and a bit quite surprised at her intellectual abilities because he hadn't met many educated women. But once he realised that it was possible, he very happily worked with her on this final edition. You can't consider Montaigne's relationship with women without putting her right at the foreground, I think, Marie de Gournay. You raise an interesting point there about his experience with those who were different to him, and Marie de Gournay is an indicator of how he dealt with gender difference. But given that he's this highly educated and wealthy man, this huge private estate, his own tower, do you have a sense of how insular or expansive his world was? I'm struck by the fact that in his essay on cannibals, he raises all sorts of interesting points, but one of them is that we call barbarous that which we're not accustomed to. Do we have any sense of his experience with people of a different social rank or a different ethnicity or even a different faith? Yes, in a sense, by our standards, very little. There's different faith in the sense of actually outside Christianity. Protestant and Catholic, yes, but he had many Protestant friends, although he was a Catholic. I don't think that he had much encounter with people of different religions altogether, although there's been a lot of speculation about whether he himself had some Jewish origins. It's very possible that he might have done, but he doesn't write a great deal about that. He actually doesn't write a great deal about religion at all. It's not a subject that seems to interest him very much. But his experience of people from other cultures, what little experience he did have, he was fascinated by. He wrote about it. He reflected on it a lot, I think. So at one point he met some Native American people, Tupinamba people who had come or travelled or been brought by a European ship over the Atlantic and were introduced to some French people and he had a chance to speak to them briefly. What fascinated him most was their perspective on French society because they were very struck by the fact of the tremendous social inequality in France, the fact that the rich would indulge in a huge feast while the poor were starving outside, a thing that would never happen in their society. And also by the fact that at that time there was a boy king on the French throne and that didn't make any sense to them either. That seemed ridiculous. So he was fascinated by their fascination and the way that they reflected this very different perspective on European and French society, which in turn made him think about how... It's like that for everything. We unquestioningly live within our own culture and we take that to be the measure of everything. But so does everybody else. All these things are partial. All these assumptions that we make about what's right and what's decent or how you should dress or how you should speak or how you should behave are all up for question. So it feeds his scepticism. But he was very much a consumer among his books. There were featured quite a few travel books that were coming out by European visitors to other parts of the world, including across the Atlantic. And he wrote very much from that point of view of, as you say, who is the real barbarian. You can't pass judgment on other cultures because we all have a partial perspective. 
I have the feeling of someone who, by our standards, didn't have a lot of contact with different cultures and yet used what he had to the maximum in reflecting on it and applying it to himself. Class, the other thing you mentioned, of course, there's no getting away from the fact that he was a propertied nobleman with a huge retinue of servants. He says a few things that implies that he envies the simplicity of their life, which, of course, is classic, rather condescending assumptions that people of the aristocracy did tend to make. He was no revolutionary. He was certainly not somebody who would overthrow the social structure of things. But I think there's always that sort of doubt lurking in his mind. But he's not a natural activist. He's not a natural somebody who would go out there and try and change things. He's more someone who would reflect thoughtfully on things and write about them. Can I ask you about that balance between reflection and action? This as we've talked about, is an age in which the humanists are thinking very much about classical examples. One of the great questions of the ancient age, which has been revived at this point, is this question about otium and negotium. Negotium being the act of business or work, and otium being the leisured life of learning. And I wonder how Montaigne did it. He serves as a mayor of Bordeaux. He's experiencing the wars of religion, plague. He's the head of a large household. And yet he also wants to spend time reflecting and in philosophical debate and pursuing a fulfilling life. So how did he balance duty with that desire for otium? He gives the impression of someone who struggles with that himself, but you can't entirely just take at face value his constant assertion that he really doesn't want to do any of that negotium at all. He doesn't want to have responsibility for the estate. He doesn't want to have a political career. He doesn't want to have anything to do with historical events. All he wants to do is sit quietly enjoying his thoughts. He was a magistrate in the Parlement in Bordeaux for many years and mayor for four years. And he also was a good friend of the what became the king, Henri IV. He knew Catherine de' Medici. He really actually was quite involved. That was expected of him. It was the kind of duty that he felt he couldn't get out of, but... He did do it and he did, of course, reflect on that as well. And if he had succeeded in completely disentangling himself from all these involvements, his work would have been the poorer for it because he wouldn't have had so much to reflect on. Then he really would have been just on his own in the tower with his books. He liked to present himself that way or as somebody who wanted to do that, but he wasn't. He was a busy man. He also, it's worth mentioning in this context as well, that he took himself off travelling for a very long period, about 18 months. He left the estate in the hands of people who would look after it for him, including, I'm sure, his wife would have had a lot to do with that. But he went off on this grand tour, which took him through parts of what's now Germany and Switzerland and down into Italy and to Rome, which was what so many people wanted to see, Rome, because that's where it had all happened, all that classical culture, all that Latin culture. But he was away for a very long time, meeting people and keeping a journal, finding out about local conditions, making political contacts. There was a little bit of diplomacy probably going on. So again, this isn't the choice of somebody who just wants to sit quietly in his room reading. This is somebody who's very interested in the world and knows a lot of people. Because although he was often on his estate, he had a lot of visitors and he had a big network of friends outward looking, I think, engaged with the world, but rather 
enjoying that pipe dream of just having a very quiet life. To end then, I wonder if we can reflect again about his legacy today. What makes him feel relevant? Because I'm struck by two things. One, we've mentioned Virginia Woolf. So let's mention Leonard Woolf, who Mm. said that Montaigne was the first completely modern man. And what seems to be the answer, but perhaps the best answer seems to be the act of living fully. He says life should be an aim unto itself, a purpose unto itself. Is it that in the end, perhaps more than anything else in his life and work that makes him feel modern, that makes him feel relevant, do you think? I think that's a large chunk of it. That is certainly something that appeals to me. It's one of those things that you can't really take a simple message out of his book, which is partly what in having these 20 attempts at an answer, no answers, just attempts at an answer. I was trying to just explore the richness of what's available in his book. And often I find there are things in his book that definitely speak very much to the modern reader and the modern world and the problems that we wrestle with. But you find them almost at random. You find them by dipping into the book and pulling out a bit here and a bit there and going back to it constantly. In my case, I always constantly go back to rereading an essay here or there. I don't think there's any one message, but you're right. I mean, if I did have to boil it down to one message, it is about living life well and fully and reflecting on it. So there's a little bit of the unreflecting life is not, wouldn't exactly say not worth living, but I think that he believes that the fullest life is one that is reflected upon, thought about and lived well, lived responsibly, lived pleasurably. There is that Epicurean side to him that believes in enjoying yourself not necessarily at the expense of anybody else because that wouldn't be true happiness but getting the most out of what life presents us with he doesn't question any of the dogmas of religion but you get a very strong sense in the book of someone who's just not that interested in the afterlife or the realm of the theological he's completely engaged with life in this world as it's lived by human beings in his case himself and everybody else that he encounters. It's a very worldly book in that sense. If people have had their appetite whetted, of course they should try and pick up a copy of his essays. But a nice way into that, a very wonderful way into it, is your book, How to Live a Life of Montaigne, in one question and 20 attempts as an answer. And they also might well be interested in your most recent book, which is Humanely Possible, 700 Years of Humanist free thinking, inquiry and hope. Sarah Bakewell, thank you so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a huge pleasure for me. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.